You are listening to Real Life and Other Fantasies, a podcast by engaging storytellers for engaged story listeners. Here's your host, author and journalist, Melvin E. Edwards. Hello, fellow storytellers, and welcome to this edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Our guest today is Patrick Chovanek. He's an economist for a New York-based asset management firm. He has spent much of his life in China and taught at Tsinghua University in Beijing and at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. He has appeared regularly in the media to provide his insights into China and the global economy, and I'm thankful that he's here with us today. So, Patrick, uh, you and I have followed each other on Twitter for a couple of years. It's very nice to finally be able to talk to you. Welcome to the Real Life and Other Fantasies podcast. Yes, Melvin, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I, it's it's great to be able to sit down and talk with you. We've we've conversed many times on Twitter. It's not the same thing as sitting down and, and talking with somebody, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. Thank you. So you first visited China in 1986. And have traveled to every one of its 31 provinces, including um, or as well as Taiwan. And your travels have taken you to over 50 countries, including Pakistan, Cuba, Vietnam, and Cambodia. And you are one of a limited number of U.S. citizens to have visited North Korea. So my question is, have you also received love letters from Kim Jong-un? <laughs> I'm glad I have not. I kept uh, a low enough profile that that was not necessary. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stories there uh, to tell. The, uh, you know, when I grew up, my family didn't travel much at all, uh, certainly not internationally. Our idea of vacation was to pile in the car and drive out to maybe Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or something like that. And then when we started, when I was maybe in, in my younger teens, traveling to other countries, it was, you know, on a tour, like a tour bus, you know, every, everybody you can imagine, you know, all the Americans on the tour bus and everybody gets off and points at the Eiffel Tower and that, that was it. And then one day in 1986, my father came home with a brochure and he said, they're giving tours of China. We can go see the Great Wall. And, you know, it, for us, it was kind of like, you know, another tour, right? But it, it, completely changed everything uh, in terms of my interest in traveling, seeing the world, because it was unlike anything that we had ever seen. And of course, I went, went on to to live in China, marry somebody from China. Um, so, you know, I guess that was a turning point. All right. So you're a CPA. And I'm wondering if the AI CPA frowns on ac- accountants doing cool and fun stuff. <laughs> I hope not. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I got my CPA after going to get my MBA, my master's of business administration. And, and uh, I, um, I did it because, well, you know, so when I took accounting in, in, uh, in college, I barely scratched by with a B because I hated it. I, it. It just, it didn't bear any relationship to anything that I was doing. And then several years later, I was actually 
running a small company. This is this is one of the oddities of my life. I was running a company with a friend of mine who's also on Twitter, um, who uh, it was a mushroom company. We went <laughs> we went and we we acquired wild mushrooms for people who were hunting them in the forests of Southern Illinois and went up and sold them to restaurants in Chicago. And it was a regional, it was a regional thing and it was a seasonal thing and it was a lot of fun. And I did the accounting for it. And all of a sudden it, it all started to click and it made sense. And then when I got my MBA, I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do this because at CPA, at least people, people know what that means. I have a lot of kind of adventurous stuff in my, in my background and, it's hard to kind of put in a nice clear box. So I said, this is something that at least somebody's going to be able to say, well, he can read a balance sheet. He can read an income statement. And, uh, and that got me at least a couple of jobs in China, you know, looking at investments. All right. So what attracted you to China other than the brochure that your dad brought home? And <laughs> how did that create a spark to learn so much about the politics and economics of that country? So, you know, like I say, when 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 we went there, it was like nothing we had ever experienced before. And China at that time, you know, I remember Steven Spielberg talking about when he went there to film Empire of the Sun around the same time, 1986 or so. And he said Shanghai, he didn't need to do any you know, before CGI and he didn't need to do any kind of set alterations because the city looked like it had in 1945. It hadn't changed. And so it was like this step into a whole different world. And then over the course of many years going back there, uh, both as a tourist initially, uh, a backpack tourist, uh, then working there, uh, teaching there, I saw it change so much. You know, I don't think I've traveled to a lot of countries around the world and I have not seen any country change as much in terms of, well, the physical changes, but also just the lifestyle changes as China has. And it's been fascinating to be part of that. I mean, some of the changes more recently have been ominous and, and worrisome, um, but, uh, but it's been fantastic to be part of history in that way. Um, and I, you know, I, just to make it more concrete, um, I remember getting off of a boat uh, in southern China, in the middle of what seemed to be nowhere, it was you know rice paddies and everything, and and there was a guy as we stepped off the boat who had a a refrigerator like one of those refrigerators in a drugstore, and he had cans of Coca Cola and other soft drinks, selling it to us you know cold, and there was a uh, an extension cord that must have run you know a mile to the next village uh, to keep this thing cool. And I think, well, first of all, I was impressed. You know, this, there's a lot of entrepreneurship there. But uh, I think that guy probably is a billionaire right now. You know, he, he probably wow. turned that little uh, entrepreneurial thing into, into uh, a small company, then a medium company, and then a huge company, and a family of companies. And he's probably uh, making, you could probably, you know, buy and sell uh you know, multiple homes in, in Manhattan uh, and probably has money stashed all over the world. It's just, you know, to, to, to be in on that and see the beginnings of that was fascinating. So uh, the provinces of China, are they 
relatively similar to the states here? Are they all different? Are they like each is each one like a different country? Yeah, I mean it's it's um I actually wrote a article several years ago. It was in the Atlantic and it was kind of an interactive article. And I think they've taken it down now, but it's actually on my website or at least of some form of it is on my website, which is just patricktraumatic.com. And um, it was called the nine nations of China. And it was inspired by a book that had come out uh, and I had read in college called the nine nations of North America. And it basically just divided not up by political boundaries, but by kind of cultural and historical boundaries, nine different nations of, of North America. And as I traveled and worked in China, that, that idea was kind of kicking around in the back of my head. And I came up with this scheme of, of nine nations of China and how they have a history that goes all the way back to the beginning. And in some cases, we're, we're actually separate countries at one point that were then integrated into China and how different they are. Um, and, you know, when you meet people in China, if you tell them you're from Shanghai, or you tell them from you're from Hunan or you tell them you're from Guangdong, they they will know, you know, they will have an image in their mind about what that means, just like we do. Um, and so I've I've always wanted to write that book. I've always wanted to um, and maybe, you know, in the near future, I will to sort of tell the story about how China is not this one big anonymous homogenous place that it really, you know, that, that it, there are significant regional differences and historical differences that then kind of give you a mental map of, of, of the place that I think, you know, most Americans don't have. So which part of it did you find the most fascinating? Well, I've always found the Silk Road very interesting. And I, I went out on the Silk Road, which is Western China, uh, in um, back in the early 1990s, uh, before they had built the railroad out uh, all the way. And, you know, it was, it, there, there is, there's a history there. It's, it's desert. It's not like we think of China, which is, you know, very highly populated. You can go, you can drive, you know, hours and really see only a handful of people. Um, so I, I kind of like that remoteness and, and, uh, and, you know, part of that is these days it's tricky because, you know, that that includes Xinjiang and obviously Han Chinese settlement in Xinjiang and the repression of the of the native people there, the, the Uyghur Turks, uh, is something that has caught a lot of attention um, and generated probably not a half as much outrage as it should. But, you know, seeing that before that took place um, was very interesting. During your travels there, other than the Great Wall, where were you most likely to see uh, groups of Americans, uh, tourists or um, people who were living there? Or, or well, when I there? first, you know, when I first went, um, we were we were a sight to behold. Um, you know, if it, people wanted to come up, I mean, it really until the 1990s, people would come up to you and want to take your picture and want to have a picture taken with you. And there might be a handful of places where it's like that in China today, but now, you know, no, they've all seen a foreigner. Uh, the only place that that actually does take place in China still is in Tiananmen square, because there are a lot of people from the provinces who come in 
and they've never seen a foreigner. So they, you know, they, you're part of the attraction, you know, you're part of the visit to, to Tiananmen Square, the big city is always oh, saw a foreigner. Um, but, uh, but, you know, by the time that I was working and teaching there, there was, uh, you know, a pretty significant community of foreigners in Beijing and in Shanghai, and even in some smaller cities. Um, I think that has started to change because things have, I mean, you know, the, the, the circumstances in China have become a lot less hospitable to foreigners. Obviously COVID created a lot of difficulties in, in living in China and traveling back and forth. A lot of people left because of that, but also just the political changes have made it uh, less welcoming uh, for expats to sort of set up shop and, and, and envision raising a family there. All right. So um, speaking of um, the pandemic and COVID, in the wake of COVID-19 pandemics, you began learning to fly and you earned your private pilot's license in September 2021. Were you yeah. inspired no. by the Foo Fighters song? <laughs> so I never imagined that I would learn to fly an airplane, ever. Um, I was a passenger and not always a particularly comfortable one at that. Um, but, you know, the lockdown happened and I was, well, this was 2020, so I was 50 years old. Um, I... Um, this was New York. We got hit very hard um, and we really were locked down for uh, several months and spending time with my family was great in some ways, but you know, we all got on each other's nerves and uh, I love to travel obviously. And I couldn't travel. I had lots of trips planned that got canceled um, by COVID. And um, so we were sitting down, my son and I were sitting down uh, in front of YouTube and we were looking at stuff. And we saw a promotional video for Microsoft Flight Simulator. Now, I'm, I'm kind of a computer game buff. I like, I like to see what's possible, the computer graphics. Uh, but I was never really a flight sim guy because it always seemed very complicated and difficult. And I didn't feel like I was necessarily up to it. So, uh, but this was a way where, you know, I was stunned because the, the graphics were so amazing. It was like photorealistic images of London or, you know, wherever. And, and, and I said, you know, God, I kind of miss traveling. I, I wish I could travel like this on my computer. And, but then if I did, if I buy this, I'm going to have to learn how to at least fly on the, on the computer. Uh, but I took the plunge and I said, you know, this is what, what else am I going to do? You know, I'm not, not going anywhere. So, so uh, I bought this and I started studying people playing it on, on YouTube, uh, some of them pilots. And I became curious about different things, you know, like, well, why, when do you lower your flaps and why? And, and what do the markings on the runway mean and all that kind of stuff? And I started again to look at YouTube videos and eventually it became clear that that wasn't going to be enough, that there were the real answers were going to be, I would take have to take ground school and ground school is uh a um it used to be in person now it's online where you just buy a course you know for 250 bucks and you watch a bunch of videos and and um this is usually the first step to you know people learning to fly in real life and uh, but i was just curious i was just kind of like it was a non-fiction book that i wanted to read just to learn and uh and what ended up happening was, you know, when you watch these videos, they're like, well, when you're up with your instructor and when you're doing this, and I, I'm like, they expect me to go do this. So 
like maybe I should. And by around October, Halloween, uh, the f- things were starting to open up and flight school, I called the flight school and they, they were open and I signed up with my son to go on what's called discovery flight, which is the first one. And I kept going. And a year later, uh, I got my license and, uh, it was completely unexpected. <laughs> wow. So obviously you enjoyed it because it led to you writing a book. So you, you recently wrote a book called Cleared for the Option, and yep. you wanted um, to share with readers your experiences and satisfy some of the curiosities that they may have had that you also experienced. So can you tell us, tell the listeners about the book and how they can get a copy of it? So the book isn't out yet. It'll be out in November. Um, but, uh, but I actually will be uploading a preview uh, to my website about uh, maybe the first chapter of it um, to give people a, a taste. And it basically tells the story that I just told you about how I became interested in it. Yeah, I think, you know, when I got into this, I didn't really expect uh, to write this book. And if anybody who knew me heard that I was putting together a book, they would assume that I was writing it about China or I was writing it about economics you know, the things that I'm kind of known for. And I do have probably a few books in me, you know, along those lines. But but this was something where I was interested in enough to find it interesting and to want to share it. You know, like, what do pilots learn? What do they go through? Um, and I, it's, it's a 400, well, the, the, the text itself is about 320 pages uh, with a glossary and everything else, it's 400 pages, but, but, you know, that's right. I mean, I don't, it's not like a little memoir. I, 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 I tell what I learned, um, and talk about all the different experiences that I had, um, and each step along the way that was, uh, a challenge, a setback, a sense of accomplishment, uh, how I, you know, encountered something that was difficult and how I figured out how to, how to master it. The body of knowledge that you learn about, I had no idea, uh, the, you know, the kind of things about navigation, the weather, uh, the mechanics of the airplane engine, all these things that then you're tested on, uh, to become a pilot. So, you know, I was kind of writing it down and I figured, well, maybe other people are sort of curious about these things. It's written partly for people who, either are learning to fly or maybe thought, well, is that for me? You know, maybe what am I getting myself into if I do this? But it's also written for people who have no intention of of doing that. You know, people who are passengers and they're, you know, we, when we get on an airplane, we kind of look into the cockpit and we see all those lights and buttons and wonder what the heck that's all about. And, you know, there's this mystery. We all fly, but, uh, but there's still this mystery of actually flying a plane and how to do that. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why you may remember a couple, maybe about a year ago now, uh, there was the story of a guy in Florida who was a passenger and then the pilot passed out. And then he had to yes. take man, you know, he had to take control of the plane and, and land it with the help of air traffic control. And a lot of people paid attention to that, you know, who aren't interested in becoming a pilot, they just, it's fascinating because you think if I was in that situation, you know, what would I do? How, what could I, could I actually land it? 
and that's what you go through when you decide to learn how to fly a plane. You know, you actually go through that over and over and over again until you get reasonably good at it and your instructor feels confident in letting you go and do it by yourself. Uh, so it's, you know, I think we're all sort of a little interested in what that's like. At least I hope that's uh, how readers feel. So what types of planes have you flown so far? Okay, so I've only flown a, uh, well, I've flown a Cessna 172, which is the the one that almost everybody learns it. And it's the standard trainer. It's actually um, the largest number of, the, the most produced airplane in history, I believe. It's like 40 or 50,000 of them out there um, because almost everybody learns to fly in a Cessna 172. Uh, I have gone up flying in a icon, I think it's called icon a five, which is a little thing that it actually can land in water. And I went on a flight in that I want to fly a number of different things. I'd, I'd like to, um, I, um, I had a couple of health issues in the past year that, that kept me grounded while I was writing the book and hopefully they're over and I'm going to get back up into the air. But, uh, I, I've flown a bunch of things on um, uh, the flight on flight sim, uh, and I'm actually now I, I, w- I would post these because I'm interested in history, and so this is sort of an offshoot of my interest in history is this history of different kinds of planes and the impact that they've had, and I kind of use the excuse of flying them in the flight sim to to write about them, um, and um, and I I posted them on Twitter. And it must have caught somebody's attention because Flying Magazine asked me to if they could print up versions of them. And so now I've been publishing them on a regular basis in Flying Magazine. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I have I have an interest in, in flying a number of different planes. But, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people, a lot of pilots, until they become, until they actually get their 1500 hours, which is the regulatory requirement to become an airline pilot. Because a lot of people who learn how to fly, they, they want to become an airline pilot until they, for, for, you know, for several years, all they fly is, is Cessna 172s, either as a student or an instructor then, because that's how they earn a living until they can accumulate the hours that they need to then become a pilot, um, in the airlines. And so at that point, then they make the transition to, flying other cooler stuff with more than one engine. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking to Patrick Chauvinik about his perceptions of China and his other travels around the world. We'll be right back in just a moment. Make 1908 House of Wine and Ale your new favorite destination between San Antonio and New Braunfels. With 15 ales on tap, more than 30 craft beers in cans and bottles, and over 70 wines, we have a selection that's perfect for both relaxing with a glass or gathering with your friends. We even have wine on tap. That's right, we have wine on tap. www.1908houseofwine.com Family and animal friendly. We're back with Patrick Chauvinik who's our guest today. So um, question I've got for you, Patrick, um, after living in China, what things did you notice about the United States 
that you hadn't noticed before going there? <laughs> oh boy, that's a big <laughs> one. Um, you know, while I was there, see what struck me is how divided and polarized our country is now. And when you're an expat and you're living in a American community or a community of Americans abroad, in a friendly country, an unfriendly country, or whatever, you you really feel this sense of commonality that there's that, that you have this shared identity as Americans. You're all in the boat, one boat together. You may not agree about everything. You may disagree about lots of things, but but the contrast between being an American and you know in a in a foreign place in a foreign land always highlights that commonality. And then to come back. And have that, you know, that view obviously not shared <laughs> uh, has been a bit of a shock. Um, hmm. You know, I, I, I'm back for 10 years now, but it's still I feel. I feel strange. Uh, I feel like I'm not part of that because because, you know, when when I was traveling, when I was living abroad, uh, what what united, I mean, it sounds trite, but you know, what united us was more important than what divided us. And, and so that was a very big lived part of my experience for several years of my formative adult life. So that's, so how would you, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's one thing. Your other, your visits to other countries, how have those influenced your thinking about America and just being a citizen of the world, we'll call it. I, I think it's, um, you know, sometimes you go to places that make you realize how lucky you are and how lucky we are. Um, and I mean, I include China in that. Um, I lived in China. I like living in China. But, you know, our children were all three of them born in China. And my wife at that time was a Chinese citizen. She's subsequently become a U.S. citizen now. Um, and it was it was a choice. We had a choice um, that we could have them continue to be Chinese citizens or because they were born there or we can have them renounce their Chinese citizenship early and become U.S. citizens. And we chose the latter. And, you know, if, if asked, I mean, we're fine, we have problems here in the United States and there are things I you know worry about in terms of our future. But, you know, they have the ability to to speak their mind, to disagree with those who are in power, um, to strike out, to be individuals. Um, and you don't need anybody's permission, um, to, to live the kind of life that you want to live. Um, and that's not true in a lot of places. And, you know, in China, you can lead a pretty normal life, um, until you cross the wrong person or you say the wrong thing. And then the boom gets lowered. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I've seen a lot of people in China who have talked up about how great it is to be in China and how China's, you know, world beating and it's better. And then things turned and they had and they found themselves in trouble. The first mm -hmm. thing they did was usually call up the U.S. Embassy you know, <laughs> and try to try to get a lifeline. And, and so so that's, you know, that's one thing. The other thing is you go to other countries like. Lebanon or, or Ethiopia, uh, where, you know, things fall apart. Uh, either in Lebanon, things that they had just been through a terrible period of, of civil war and sort of had gotten 
a little bit back on their feet. In Ethiopia, I visited during a time of peace in which there was a lot of hope. And then war returned uh, about a year after I came back. And you realize how fragile uh, things are that you can't take for granted the sort of things that, that we have in this country. I think there are a lot of people sometimes in this country who say, well, you know, what do we got to lose? Uh, or, or how can things get worse? And it's like <laughs> uh, traveling around the world, I can tell you there are a lot of places where things get a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so maybe that's a little bit of perspective there that, that, uh, that I have. Okay, so I have one final question about China. And I usually try to stay away from politics on the show, but um, there's just one thing I, I'd like to know. So back in the 90s, it was always said that you should never mention the three T's regarding China, which were Taiwan, Tiananmen, and Tibet. Is that still true there? I think you could probably add a couple more to that now. Um, Xinjiang, maybe Winnie the Pooh. Um, I should explain a little bit. Uh, back a couple of years ago, when uh, President Obama was still in office, uh, there was a photo that circulated on the Chinese internet that had uh, uh, that compared she and Obama walking together with a photo or image of uh, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, and it, the resemblance was striking. And apparently, she didn't find that very funny uh, because at that at that point. It was completely wiped off that all references to Winnie the Pooh, not just that photo, but all references to Winnie the Pooh were completely wiped off the Chinese Internet. Um, so, you know, there are there are topics that are sensitive, either domestically or for foreigners. And a lot of U.S. companies, you know, seen it with the NBA or with Hollywood that run afoul of that um, get get slapped and sometimes get punished by the Chinese government for doing that. Researchers who um, look into areas like Tibet, like um, Xinjiang, like Tiananmen, um, get blacklisted, aren't able to go to China, which sometimes can really impede their careers. Um, So, you know, what's interesting about all of this is how sensitive the Chinese government is to controlling the narrative, both at home and abroad. Um, about certain issues and how sensitive they are to that. Um, you know, if, if somebody, if some airline had a map that showed Puerto Rico as a separate country, I, I don't think the U.S. government would get all upset and ban their flights. Um, but in China, that happens uh, if you show Taiwan as an independent country on a map. So, you know, what's interesting about this is, I think the broader issue that it raises is the role of public opinion within China, because one of the reasons why they're so concerned to control this narrative is is to control public opinion on these issues, but also about the legitimacy of the government in China. And, you know, we kind of have some caricatures in the United States when we look at China and we think either... Uh, everybody's in lockstep and been completely brainwashed by, you know, the Communist Party or um, that they're all, you know, seething with unrest and unhappy and being told what to do. And And the truth is actually much more complex than that. You know, when I went to China in the 80s, it was true that people really didn't know that much about the outside world. And they pretty much just believed whatever they were told. When I went to North Korea um, more recently, 
that was the case. But when I lived in China, um, and that's before she took over, when I lived in China, I, I was surprised by the range of opinions people had um, about issues and were willing to discuss. Um, sometimes those issues were obviously their views were very much affected by what they heard the government say since the time that they were growing up. But it's not like people in China can't go to Taiwan and talk to Taiwanese. It's not like they can't uh, travel to other countries. It's not like they can't, um, uh, they're not supposed to, in some cases, the Chinese internet is, is uh, censored, but you know, people are pretty savvy about getting around that. So, you know, what I found was that there were a surprisingly interesting range of opinions that people were willing to express. Now that has changed somewhat under Xi and, you know, COVID has really impacted that as well because I just said people can travel. Well, people can't travel. They haven't been able to travel for the past three years out of China. It's been very difficult for them. Same thing with people going to China. Um, so, you know, there's been this mood of greater isolation within China and that has given the government more control. But the real question is, can you have a modern economy that where where things are like North Korea, where you know people are told what to think? I think it's problematic. And I think that the direction that China has been moving in over the past you know, 20, 30 years has been towards greater and greater openness. And now, you know, she is attempting to control to exert greater and greater control over discussion of these types of issues. And, um, and I don't, I don't think we know exactly what the result will be in terms of, you know, China's future. We know, for instance, in Hong Kong, that, um, that people, uh, you know, there's been a crackdown in Hong Kong. People used to be able to freely talk about these issues. They had a Tiananmen protest every year, uh, on the anniversary that's been banned now. And actually the population of Hong Kong has been declining because young people have been leaving because they don't want to live in that kind of situation. They don't want to develop their talents um, and, and apply themselves in an environment that's that restrictive. So if China continues to go in that direction, um, I think it's going to be, they're going to have a problem. So as we conclude, um, I have just one final question for you. As you look back on your life, what one part of your real life has seemed the most like a fantasy that you never could have imagined early on. I'll tell you, there's a very particular scene that I found myself in. I was living in Beijing and my mother-in-law passed away. And we went to the funeral and I expected to be, you know, part of the family at the funeral. But what I didn't understand and then quickly dawned on me that uh, I was the, as the son-in-law, uh, I was the eldest son hmm. at the, at the funeral, at the wake. And so I was to play that role of the eldest son. And I hmm. found myself at a Chinese funeral, both greeting everyone and accepting their condolences, and then also leading the funeral procession. And as this was happening, I'm thinking, I'm a kid from Chicago. Uh, I had no idea, even after I came back from a trip to China, that I would ever find myself on the other side of the world 
being the eldest Chinese son at a funeral. You know, and and I think that's you asked what seemed like a fantasy. That's what seemed like a fantasy is like how, it's one of those scenes in uh uh you know the uh in a movie where they go, you know, uh it goes and they say, Now, how did I get here? <laughs> well, it's a long story. Um so that was to, to, to find myself so immersed in another culture that I was playing this role was unreal. Wow, that's great. So when the book and the movie come out, I guess we can call it like Chicago's Eldest Son in China or some, something like that. I don't like know that. if this is going to be a movie, but, but uh, <laughs> this is, the book is, is, a, is a deep dive into knowledge. I don't think it makes a movie, but, uh, but maybe, you know, uh, maybe a good documentary. Who knows? You, know, you never know. All right. So, uh, Patrick Chauvinic, I'm thankful that you took the time to come on with us today to talk about these issues. I appreciate your insights on Twitter. I wish we had more people like you um, to shine some light rather than just throw heat. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I look forward to reading everything you write and I, I always enjoy it and I always learn something. So thank you for coming on today and, and talking to us. Well, you're very welcome. And, uh, you know, Melvin, if people are, are watching this podcast, I'm sure they know what a great presence you are on, you are on Twitter as well. So it's, it's been a privilege. Thank you. And best wishes on the release of your book this November. And I will make sure I give you a shout out once that comes out. I, I will keep you updated. Thank you. Hey, thanks right. a lot. That's it for today's episode of Real Life and Other Fantasies. Join us again next week for another great storyteller as we take a mental road trip to destinations unknown. Until then, don't forget to shine some light wherever you go. That was another edition of Real Life and Other Fantasies with your host, Melvin E. Edwards. Join us again next time for more stories about more things than you can imagine. Some of those true stories may even be about real life. See you next time.